Shelby Love, The Beginning, The Middle, and The End, The End, Part 2, by Carl Marking. We know how this will end. If I can tell you this story, I know you can hear it. This is for Shelby. The July following Shelby's cataract surgery, we learned the upper chambers of her heart had ballooned. Her heart was incapable of properly pumping her blood. We were told she had three months to live, and that she'd most likely die in cardiac crisis, from a heart attack, a stroke, or from her lungs filling with fluid and drowning her. We did our best to make peace with her new realities. What we could manage and improve, like her strength, flexibility, and mobility, we did, using medications, physical therapy, and modifications to all our routines. We ensured her life was as good as it could be. Once she'd been blinded in her right eye, we had many near misses, barely avoiding running into each other throughout the house. She walked more tentatively, and as such, the charms on her collar weren't as likely to chime. She'd become a walking tripping hazard. I did some research and bought a set of bells used for falconry, which were both loud and sensitive to motion. I put one on Shelby's collar, and sure enough, it did the trick. Can we put one on Patience? Jim asked. I have the hardest time finding her sometimes. She was one stealthy cat. She also was not pleased with her new loud bell. When she discovered she could wake us up in the middle of the night by sitting outside the bedroom door and hitting it repeatedly with her hind leg, it became one of her favorite things. Dispensing Shelby's medication became a central part of our lives. Depending on what war was raging in her eyes, she had up to six different eye drops since her surgery and ablation. In between each kind of drop, we had to wait five to ten minutes. She was also on seven different oral route medications. She had pills for her stomach, her heart, her eyes, and her joints. Administering her medication each day would take anywhere from half an hour to an hour, twice a day. We'd begin each eye drop session by saying, let me see those pretty eyes, and end with, good girl, and then a meal or a treat. She was now enjoying a lot of peanut butter, as it was the single best way to get her to take her pills. She loved peanut butter. Her favorite was a peanut butter that had coconut in it. There wasn't a pill in the world she wouldn't swallow if it was slathered in that stuff. Our mornings began with a click-click-click of her toenails on the hardwood floor just inside our bedroom. If that wasn't enough to rouse us, she'd come a bit further in, stand on the area rug at the foot of our bed, and shake her head, sounding her falcon bell, which always woke us up. The more effort she put into waking us, the greater her need to pee. We kept clothes at the foot of the bed so we could quickly throw something on, scoop her up, carry her down the steps, and set her on the floor of the hallway at the foot of the staircase. We wanted her to walk as much as she could each day, and it was a decent walk from the back stairs to the sliding door of the paddock off the family room at the opposite end of the house. Next were her meds. We'd begin her morning routine of drops and pills as we had coffee and got ourselves ready for the day. Shelby and Tucker loved to spend the day in the upstairs office. While we worked, they slept. We put gates at the top and the bottom of the steps to restrict Shelby's movement through the house. The staircase was such that we couldn't mount a proper locking gate to anything, so we used heavy, freestanding gates. It worked for the most part, but there were occasional great escapes. If she managed to break through the gate at the top of the steps, the bell would alert us with her first thump onto the top tread, 
and one of us would intervene. Did someone call for the escalator? We'd ask, scoop her up, and carry her down the steps. The frequency of her need to pee varied each day. As we gained a better understanding of Shelby's limits and strengths regarding her heart, we let her take herself up the staircase to the office. Taking herself up seemed to give her confidence and a sense of normalcy. So as long as she didn't arrive at the top panting or huffing, we'd let her do it. If she did either once she arrived upstairs, that would be her only trip up under her own power for the day. When we were all in the office, if she needed to go to the bathroom, she'd pull herself up on her feet and walk toward the staircase, but stay in our line of sight. She'd get herself stabilized on the area rug, then shake her collar. If that didn't get our attention, because we were focused on the computer or on a call, she'd find one of us and nudge us gently with her muzzle. Escalator? We'd ask. Sometimes we'd get a patient tail wag, other times a more urgent bump with her muzzle, as if she were saying, hurry up, Dad, I have to go. She didn't want to pee in the house any more than we wanted her to. It took me a long time to house train her when she first came into my life, but once she learned, she was horrified if she ever had an accident inside. If we had waited too long to carry her down from the office, she'd stop at the front door, which was on her way to the slider, and we'd quickly open the door and let her out. Dinners, and evenings in general, were planned around her medications. We didn't like having to interrupt a meal with drops every five to ten minutes, so we either ate early or late. Most days we'd have a cocktail hour in the family room. I'd put on jazz, we'd have a drink, light a fire, depending on the season and Shelby, Tucker, and Patience would come in and we'd share space. We'd break out the laser pointer for Patience. Shelby would do her best to put on her floor show. She'd take her paws and run them from her ears to her nose, do her best to wriggle around on the floor, wagging her tail, and making her low to high vocal noises that Jim came to refer to as her snoopy noises. When she finished, she'd sneeze and wait for us to gently rub her torso and muzzle with our socked feet like she loved. Tucker would loaf around the room, usually stepping on or knocking Shelby over. I've never known a dog so oblivious to the condition and fragility of its older packmate as Tucker. Every so often during family time, Shelby would get up, scan the room with her left eye and nose, zero in on patience with absolute precision, walk over to her, and half-heartedly lunge at her while giving a grunt or a short bark if she had one in her. Patience would jump up and run from the room, Tucker, who was twice Shelby's weight and size, would stand next to Patience and jump up and down beside her, landing his front feet not two inches away from her body. Unimpressed, she would just stare at him. Next, he'd unleash his foxhound bray upon her, and still she'd be unfazed. But blind, old, arthritic Shelby could always get her to run for cover. Although Patience would come right back, she never let her guard down around Shelby. It did my heart good to think Shelby still had it in her to scare something off. We turned down invitations to do anything at all after Shelby's surgery. Her systems had become unsteady. The condition of her eyes could change within hours, and it took us a while to figure out how her diuretic was impacting the frequency and urgency of her need to urinate throughout the day and night. We felt we had to be there for her if she needed us. Such was our commitment to her. That August, Shelby began barking less. It used to be if she needed to go out, she would stand at the door of her choice and sound a single, loud bark. Now, she either didn't have the strength, or her heart was interfering with the process. And because we hadn't worked out an alternative, 
She began to wet the small washable rug just inside the slider because we didn't know of her need, and she'd held it as long as she could. I'd sometimes arrive just as she was peeing, and she'd lower her head in shame. It's my fault, Shelby, I'd say, and give her scritches. I'm sorry I didn't pay better attention. I'll do better. I'd get a little tail wag, and she'd go off to her next task. Or she'd move closer to the slider, because she still wanted to go outside, just to be outside. Unfortunately, Tucker, who was perfectly fine, took these mishaps as permission to do the same thing. Given his size, his output was greater, and the mess was harder to manage. I bought a larger, water-resistant, washable rug. We'd blot dry any accident, pull up the rug, and toss it in the wash. Shelby's bladder was weakening, and she'd become intermittently incapable of holding her urine, and she'd wet herself. This began happening when she was in a deep sleep, relaxed. Enter the second washable rug and the piddle pads. We ordered human-sized pads for when Tucker decided to take advantage of a nice indoor pee on top of her accidents. We put them under her beds, and if the cover zipped open, we'd slip one between the cover and the filling. We also put them in front of the slider and used masking tape to hold them in place and make a solid shield. If she had an accident, we'd fold it up, toss, and replace as needed. No yelling. No shaming. Shelby came to realize we knew these were accidents, and although she did her best to hold out for us, when she did have an accident, she stopped looking guilty about it. The back staircase had an opening beside the first set of steps up to the first landing. It was probably intended to be closed off with a door and used for storage, but we kept it open when we renovated the house and put a dog bed in there. We even hung some dog and cat-themed artwork on the walls to make it a proper pet cave. Neither showed much interest in it, except when Jim and I were divided, one of us upstairs and one of us down. If Jim were working up in the office and I were working from the kitchen, Shelby would be conflicted as to where she wanted to spend her time. It was the damnedest thing. The area under the stairs was the literal midpoint between Jim and I, and Shelby claimed it for herself as such. Anytime Jim and I were divided like that, she slept in her dog cave. One sunny afternoon in September, I carried her into the front yard to pee. Her hock was flared up and she was uncomfortable. When I set her in the yard, she stood there, frozen. What's wrong, sweetie? She looked up at me. Her normally button-style ears hung loosely from her head, and her eyebrows were turned in such a way that she looked sad. I'd never seen that expression on her face. Something about that look, having never seen her wear it before, got me going through the checklist Jim and I had come up with for her quality of life. I noticed some things were missing. She wasn't barking every day. She wasn't wagging her tail every day. She wasn't doing her floor show every evening. And when she did, she wasn't always doing her snoopy noises. She was spotting her bed more frequently, and when we'd scoop her up, we could feel urine on our forearms. I started paying attention to her every single change. A week later, when she stepped through the slider from the family room floor to the top step, which was about a four-inch drop, her hind legs gave out from under her. She slowly pulled herself up. From there, she had just one more four-inch transition to an area we had made for her to pee that was right off the top step. She made it with no problem, peed, but when she came back into the house, she had to gently pull her hind legs up and onto the family room floor, dragging her feet over the track of the slider. We increased the frequency of her physical therapy from bi-weekly to weekly. At the beginning of October, 
Shelby had her annual vaccination appointment. I want to hold off on her rabies vaccine a while, Brenda said. How come? I already knew the answer. I just didn't want to face it. Well, it's not as if she's running around chasing wild animals, she began. The shot is hard on an older dog's system. Legally, I can withhold it for another year. I think with everything else going on with her, waiting makes the most sense. She didn't say it. I didn't push her to. But the message was clear. Shelby didn't have a year, so why put her body through any unnecessary stress? There was another vaccine she wanted to hold. My guess is Lepto. Because when I told her how many animals from the woods came into their paddock overnight, and how Shelby had taken to licking everything, from the dew off the grass to the water off the top step during and after the rain, she decided it was best to give it to her. Anything else going on? she asked. She can't hold her bladder like she used to. She's spotting her bed and can't always hold it long enough for us to get the door open for her. There are pills for that, but I'd suggest holding off as long as possible. Shelby's current cocktail of meds seems to be working. Given her sensitivities, we should be careful about introducing anything new unless we have to. The anti-inflammatories she's on can be hard on the kidneys, and she had that issue with the protein in her urine after her surgery. So we're checking her kidney and liver function today. Plus, she still has the murmur on both sides of her heart. We need to weigh risks of any med changes against the benefits. I agreed with everything she said, and Jim and I decided to deploy more piddle pads and wash her beds more often. Brenda called a couple of days later to give the results of her blood work. I don't know what to tell you. She looks great on paper. The bedwetting was getting worse. Shelby was regularly damp from her urine. It couldn't be good for her to be sleeping in her urine, and we couldn't subject her to daily baths. They'd take too big a toll on her skin and her body. Two days before Halloween, we called Brenda and got a prescription for medication that would help her control her urinary incontinence. We can try it, Brenda cautioned, but pay attention for any changes in her. I gave her the first dose that morning. That evening, after we'd all had our various dinners and were watching TV, Shelby made a strange noise as she lay on her therapy bed across from us. It sounded as if she were choking on something and trying to bring it up. I texted Carrie. When you have a chance, the last couple of weeks Shelby's been wetting her bed when she sleeps. It was pretty bad yesterday, so we called Brenda and put her on a medication that is supposed to help her muscle tone for her incontinence. I gave her the first dose this morning, and now she's really huffing and making noises like she thinks she has something in her throat she needs to bring up which I'm assuming is related to her heart. Is there any weirdness with these drugs and hearts, or is it just coincidence? Carrie replied, There is a use with caution indicator on these meds in animals with cardiac disease, hypertension, or glaucoma. Toss in some joint discomfort, and that described Shelby perfectly, I thought. Brenda was right. We should have left well enough alone. Do you want to take her to the ER to see if she has fluid in her lungs? Could be managed, hopefully. A trip to the ER would have added to her stress and trauma. I didn't want to risk making a bad situation worse. I was about to give her the next dose of the new med. I think I'll just withhold it and see if she bounces back overnight. Is she on a diuretic? Carrie asked. Yes, 25 milligrams a day in the morning. Does the cardiologist have an on-call option? She asked. Now I was worried. Not that we're aware of. We don't even have his number. His stationery is a copy of a copy of a copy and is illegible. We go through Brenda's clinic when he does his rotation there. Does she have on-call? Not that I'm aware of. Jim and I were having an unusual week. Jim's mom had been in the hospital since Tuesday for a knee replacement. And as I was texting with Carrie, Jim got a call that his father was on the way to the ER. I would give her another dose of the diuretic tonight, Carrie texted. 
Let her pee, and if she is coughing or her resting respiratory rate is over 30, give her another dose in one to two hours, even if she's only still huffing. Okay, thanks. I waited a bit to see if Shelby would settle down so I could check her resting respiration rate. Her RRR is fine, I texted. But the cough is new? Carrie asked. Yes, she's done this five times in the last hour. A few minutes went by. Her RRR is now at 40, I texted. We gave her the second diuretic dose. Good. It should show effect within 30 to 60 minutes. The new med is at the 12-hour mark. Hopefully it will be out of her system soon, I sent. Carrie's husband is an ER vet, and she was picking his brain as well. A few minutes later, she sent, If her RRR is still high, you can repeat another dose of the diuretic in another hour. If she were in the ER, she would get an additional dose every one to two hours until her resting respiratory rate slowed or until she'd been given a total of 163 milligrams, given her weight. I'll be up for a while. Reach out if you need to. Shelby sounded terrible. But Jim and I both agreed taking her to the ER would make things worse. We had in the house what they would give her in the ER, so it didn't make any sense to put her through the trauma. Keeping her home seemed the best option. We sat in silence. Jim worried about his father's emergency as well as Shelby's. We could hear the fluid filling Shelby's lungs. I found myself wondering what I would do for her if this didn't help. Did I have it in me to take some action to put her out of her suffering? What would that even look like? I pulled my mind away from imagining. That retching noise is horrifying, I texted Carrie. As her lungs filled with fluid, the cough sounded like squeezing the last bit of fluid out of a leather wineskin, which was exactly what Shelby was trying to do. Clear fluid dripped from her nostrils. I took a video and sent it to Carrie. Can you hear? Her breathing sounded wet and seemed tied to her heartbeat somehow. Yeah, Carrie texted. That sounds wet. We need to get the fluid off her lungs. We'll do a third dose in an hour if the second dose doesn't help. Yes, Carrie replied, and so on until 163 milligrams is reached. That's what I would do. At this point, we have nothing to lose. Except Shelby, I thought. Her respiration rate would be so much worse if we schlepped her to the ER, I texted looking for confirmation that we were making a good decision and keeping her home. That's my fear, too, Carrie replied. We waited an agonizing 30 minutes, and suddenly, Shelby put her head down on the bed. Her breathing is slowing, already down to 28. Okay, Carrie replied. We go slow. Six minutes went by. Her breathing doesn't sound wet. Good. She looks wiped out, I texted. I'm sure she is. Breathing hard against resistance is exhausting. She needs to sleep. If she sleeps for four hours and her RRR goes up and stays up, dose her again. Then as an afterthought, she sent, she gets to pee the bed tonight. Okay, we gave her 25 milligrams about 30 minutes ago. When she settles, RRR is at 28, but she's still a bit all over with the fluid in her lungs. What do we do next? Wait 30 minutes. If she still sounds wet and can't settle or sleep, give the next dose. Thank you so much for helping tonight. Of course, fingers crossed. She seemed to be improving. At the hour mark, I texted Carrie. Her breathing was right on the cusp and sounded just a bit labored for her, so we gave her another 25 milligrams just now. She also just had a big drink of water, which is always good, I guess. Just waiting for her to pee. She hasn't made that hacking noise since we last texted. Excellent. That's progress, Carrie sent. She finally settled down, and her breathing returned to normal. Those were the longest two hours of our lives. We stayed up to make sure Shelby was stable and for the pee we knew was coming. She finally showed interest in going out, so we took her to the door. 
her output was impressive. The next morning, Jim left to check on his parents, both of whom were okay. Carrie texted me, exhausted? She meant Shelby, but it was safe to say we were all exhausted. I think so. She's a bit weak today, but she was also going up and down the steps a lot yesterday before the event. Tucker figured out how to break through the gate, and she trots along behind him in his wake. Took me a bit to figure it out. So not sure if she's tired from her day of legs on the steps or the event last night. Holy God, Carrie sent. That dog is going to be the death of me. She's spry when she wants to be, I sent. Check in with the cardiologist. I'm sure Shelby's exhausted from all her shenanigans and near-death experiences. Get her on the electromagnetic bed. It's interesting, I texted back. The whole thing last night played out while she was laying on that bed, but she wanted none of it while she was in crisis. That is interesting. She was probably thinking, enough of this nonsense, I'm out. Oh, wait, they called Carrie. Damn it, I guess I'm going to live another day. It was exactly three months and three weeks past Shelby's expiration date given to us by the cardiologist. After that night, we did our best to look at every day we had with her as a gift of unexpected time together. I reached out to Brenda to let her know what had happened and what we had done to get her through the episode. Wow, that's a lot of diuretic, she said. Make sure she has plenty of water to flush it out and be prepared for a lot of peeing. I'll bring the cardiologist up to speed. That evening, Shelby was back to normal, even a bit better. She did her floor show for the first time in weeks. She still wasn't making her snoopy noises or lying on her spine and wiggling around while she did it, but she did the best she could. The cardiologist had us increase her diuretic. Once we did so, her range of exploration in the yard doubled. She was walking and following scents further and longer than she had in months. Her lungs were clear, her resting respiration rate was perfectly fine, and she could once again make it up the stairs without huffing. The next couple of weeks were great. Her hock was better, she was maintaining the ground she gained in PT for longer periods, and one day she practically ran from the bottom of the back stairs all the way to the slider. She beat me to the door. Not out of an increased sense of urgency to pee, but because she could. When I got to the slider, her pink tongue was hanging out of her mouth and she had a smile I hadn't seen her wear in over a year. It did my heart good. Although we didn't discuss it, we both carried a sadness as we decorated for Christmas. I knew in my heart it was our last Christmas with Shelby. I kept reminding myself every day was a gift, but in my heart, I knew no matter how many days I had with her, they would never be enough. Normally, we would have begun decorating the day after Thanksgiving, but neither of us was up for it. Jim had caught COVID a few days before Thanksgiving, and I tested positive Thanksgiving morning. We were tired most of the time. We had to get the decorations up as we were having our first Christmas party in the house. We let everyone invited know about our COVID status and that we had been testing negative for days. Those who felt comfortable came. The night of the party as guests arrived, Shelby made an early appearance. Most of our friends knew about her being blind and were extra careful and attentive as she made her rounds, collecting pets and scritches. Then we took her up to the office so she could rest and be out of harm's way. Christmas arrived, but Shelby was not having a good day. When we let her out that morning to pee, her hind legs went out from under her again, and she slowly fell, sat under the top step. She took a beat, got herself righted, peed, and came back inside, but once again dragged her hind legs up and over the threshold and onto the floor of the family room. When she went to lay down on her therapy bed, I turned it on. She stayed put for the whole treatment. When I started to make breakfast, 
Shelby stayed by my side, waiting for the inevitable morsel to accidentally fall on the floor right in front of her. It was our thing, cooking together. Somehow her favorite things just happened to fall to the floor right in front of her, meal after meal, year after year. Each holiday and birthday, Jim and I write out cards to one another from the pets, knowing in my heart it would be Shelby's last Christmas, and wanting to be sure we gave that fact the attention it was due. I wrote out a card from Shelby to Jim. Dear Dad Jim, Not to spoil what I'm sure will be a lovely day, but we must take a moment and acknowledge this is most likely our last Christmas together. It's okay to cry. I'd cry too if I could. Thank you for working with Carrie and Dad Carl to save my life in October. I didn't mean to scare everyone. I was scared too, but I knew you were both with me. Thank you for all the walks around beautiful Chester County. Thank you for all the vacations. I never thought I'd see the ocean or hike the Appalachian Trail. Thank you for all the love and all the scritches. Thank you for being such a great escalator. Thank you for all the peanut butter. Thank you for telling me every day that my eyes are pretty. Most of all, thank you for always doing your best to keep me safe, healthy, and mobile. I have always felt so loved. You're a great dad. Merry Christmas, Shelby Love. The next morning I texted Carrie about Shelby's condition. Could be orthopedic, could be blood flow to her hind legs, could be a urinary tract infection. Let's rule out the simple things, get her urine tested. We dropped a specimen at Brenda's clinic the next day. It was clear. Okay then, orthopedic or cardiological. Two weeks after Christmas, Shelby's right eye became cloudy. Nikki and I texted back and forth and I sent pictures. It was incredibly helpful to be able to use texts and pics instead of putting Shelby through the long trip to see her in person. Nikki felt it was something to keep on top of, but wasn't worried yet. By mid-February, her right eye had worsened, and it looked as if something were calcifying on her cornea. Nikki and I again exchanged texts and pictures. She adjusted Shelby's drops, and we were able to correct it. The first week of April, while at physical therapy for myself, I noticed a weird vessel visible on the white of my right eye. Chuck, what is this? I asked my physical therapist. He looked into my eye and sucked air into his lungs in shock. Well, that can't be good, I said. Let me take a picture and text you. Holy crap, what is that? I asked. I had a large pink mass on the surface of my right eye, between the iris and the outside corner. To make a long story short, it was unclear to my ophthalmologist what it was. If it's thing A, it's nothing. If it's thing B, it could be indicative of lymphoma. Either way, it's above my pay grade. She told me to follow up with a specialist, and I made an appointment at Will's Eye Institute in Philadelphia. I couldn't get in until May. With my medical history, the way I cope is to plan for the worst, and very secretly, hope for the best. It's how I manage my anxiety. Part of me felt this tumor in my eye was the final Carl-Shelby connection. She and I shared an unusual medical journey. As she had rampant diarrhea from her intestinal worms that first spring I had her, I had my first colonoscopy prepped. She was having heartworm injections while I was having spinal injections. She cut her paw, I had to have hand surgery. We both spent months of our lives lame in various ways. I spent months in cam boots for ankle issues. She came to wear a hock brace. She had to wear the cone. I had to wear a cervical collar. 
I had to wear an electromagnetic field generator around my neck after my cervical fuse. She spent two years of her life on and off on the same tech, in the form of a bed. She tore her side open, was attacked by a skunk, and Willow once punctured her lip. I had a couple of dozen surgeries on my feet, hands, and knees. We both had Lyme disease. I suffered from visual migraines, a retinal stroke, and now a cyst on my right eye. Her right eye was blinded from her cataract surgery. We both had neck issues. We both had heart disease. We were both given away at one point in our lives, and both had near-death experiences. And we both kept going, because there was no other option for either one of us but to keep moving forward, supporting each other as best we could. I lean all the way in when I get news like this. It's my process. And I kept thinking, was our next shared journey that I would go blind in my right eye? Shelby began breathing more loudly a few days after the patch appeared on my eye. She was once again winded going up the steps. Even walking around the house, she would stop every so often to catch her breath. I took Tucker in one day to see Brenda, but she wasn't available, and one of the other doctors in the practice met with us. At the end of the visit, I said, Can we talk about Shelby? Sure, what's going on? She'd treated Shelby many times over the years and knew what the last year and a half had been like for her. I told her about her shortness of breath. She put on the face. I've seen many doctors do this over the years. It's the face that says, I have a difficult message to deliver, and I'm bracing myself to do so. There's no more room. If we increase any of her meds, we risk her kidneys. It took a long time to find this balance of medications, and I'd be greatly hesitant to change them. The risks would outweigh any benefit at this point. I think, and she stopped speaking, that we've done all we can do, I said for her. Regarding my eye, it would go like this. Jim, the pizza's here. Can you get the door? I'd call out to him, perfectly capable of answering the door myself. I'm finishing up this work thing, he'd call back. But Jim, I have cancer, I'd reply. He'd go get the pizza and shoot me a look that said something between, you're annoying, I love you, I hate when you're like this, and I know you know you're being ridiculous. I pretty much knew what he was thinking and said, You'll be glad you did that when I'm dead from lymphoma. We were in our pool area one day, and I was looking at the collection of carved stone totems we have just off the pool deck. There was one for each member of our family. The winter after Shelby went blind in her right eye, the right eye of her totem had fallen off. I looked at my totem, and over the winter, the right eye had fallen off. It's a sign. I'm going to lose my eye, I said. You're not going to lose your eye, he assured me. Remember, it's cancer. There'll be chemo first. I looked at him blankly. It's only funny when I say it. Oh, got it, he said. I'd say these things knowing they were untrue and unlikely, but as I said, it's my process to work through my fear. As the weather warmed, we noticed 80 degrees was Shelby's threshold. If she was in a space that was 80 degrees or more, her heart couldn't take it, and she'd start huffing. She was seeking out her therapy bed more often. It used to be she wouldn't lie in it unless we were in the room watching TV, but she began to seek it out at all times of day and evening. It took us a bit to catch on that she wanted a treatment, but when we did, she improved. She wanted one almost daily. We'd activate it, and she'd stretch out her body and close her eyes. How many treatments should we give her in a day? I asked Carrie. As many as she wants. 
If she doesn't need it, she'll jump up and walk away. I have to be honest. I think it's partially responsible for keeping her alive at this point. It's all about inflammation for her, her heart, her brain, her joints. How many months are you past her expiration date at this point? Six, I said. As many as she wants, Carrie said in response to my original question. I can't remember the last time I saw Shelby wag her tail, I said to Jim. I saw one the other day, he said. One. She used to wag her tail throughout the day, every day, at meals, during scritches, laying with us on the family room rug as we'd listen to jazz during cocktail hour. It had been days and I hadn't seen a single wag. I also noticed she was lying down more, not always sleeping, just lying down, watching, but not engaging, aware of us, but a little distant. She seemed to want to join us, but it was as if doing so would physically cost her more than she had to spare. She became hesitant about going down the three steps into the family room and would, instead, sit in the living room and watch us. I had my appointment that first week of May, not the cancerous kind of tumor, but I would require eye surgery to correct it. The surgery was scheduled for July 16th. A couple of days later, I said to Jim, Is it me, or is Shelby struggling to breathe when you carry her? It's not you. I'm afraid to pick her up sometimes because I feel as if putting any pressure on her chest sets off her panting. I know what you mean, he said. I can't tell if it's anxiety or how I'm holding her. That same week, while Jim and I were having cocktails on the back patio, I said, We need to start thinking about a date for Shelby. He paused for a very long time. I agree. We sat there, holding the thought. How about Friday, he offered. Friday? I said, alarmed. This Friday? Absolutely not. That's too soon. She's not that far gone. And in an attempt to self-medicate my heartache, I got drunk. Which, of course, never makes anything better in the long run. Hungover and heartsick is not a helpful combination. The next week, I took Shelby to physical therapy. How's she doing? Carrie asked. Not so well. She's struggling to get up the stairs. I thought you were carrying her. We are, but sometimes she finds a way to break through the gate at the bottom. It's really remarkable, her ability to break free from just about anything. She's always been a problem solver. Anything else? She's having trouble walking through the kitchen. We have area rugs and the tile has this finish that gives it a lot of clutch, but she's become very hesitant around tile and hardwood. She went through Shelby's usual physical therapy routine, massage, laser treatment, acupuncture, the electromagnetic bed. She's lost so much muscle mass this year, I said. She has. Her coat, as thick and shiny as ever, masked her muscle loss from view. Let me know how things go this week. When we got home, she was tired, but better, more mobile, and able to do a bit more physically. That week, we had to carry her closer or all the way to the slider. Then we had to help her more often with a single step from the slider to the top step into the paddock. Then we started having to help her back into the house as she struggled to pull her hind legs back inside with her front legs. Time was running out. We went back to carrying her both up and down the steps and did a better job of blocking off the gates. She still showed curiosity about the world around her. She was still sniffing everything. She still had her appetite, her desire to be with us. 
and passed enough of the other items on our checklist that we all kept going. Then she started wheezing when she ate breakfast. Just a few times, and only at the end, she was finishing her food, as if she had run out of room to breathe. Then I noticed she couldn't stand the entire time it took her to eat. She'd have to sit down in order to finish. Not every time, but it had become a repeating pattern. Although for a while she'd forego cocktail hour in the family room, she suddenly rallied and once again joined us each evening. She's not doing her floor show anymore, I said to Jim. There she goes, look, he said. She gave a half-hearted swipe at her nose and became still. I rubbed her torso and muzzle with my socked feet, and she narrowed her eyes in satisfaction. No wiggles on her back. No snoopy noises. On May 16th, when I took her out to use the bathroom late that morning, I had to support her left hip to keep her from falling over onto the grass while she had a poo. I shared this with Jim. I've been having to do that for a while now, he said. Are you kidding me? Why didn't you tell me earlier? I can't help her if I don't know what to tell Carrie her issues are. He looked at me, stunned at my tone, but didn't say anything. He was struggling to deal with what he knew was coming in his own way, quietly and internally. I learned to live out loud. I processed through disclosure and talking. I don't normally raise my voice to Jim. I think he knew it was driving my emotional bus in that moment. We were coming to the end of our time with Shelby, and I was angry at the coming loss, not at him. I noticed that afternoon that Shelby was breathing differently. Instead of the usual expansion and contraction of her chest, she was breathing from below her ribcage, from her diaphragm. Something was impeding her lungs from expanding outward, so she was pulling them downward. Had her heart enlarged further? Was it pushing on her stomach as well? That would also explain the change in her eating behavior. Have you noticed Shelby's breathing weird? I asked Jim. From her waist and not her chest? Yes, it's been getting a bit worse lately. Again, I was angry he hadn't said anything, but I held my tongue. The next day at physical therapy, only Carrie, her daughter Addie, Shelby and I were there. I told Carrie about Shelby falling over while using the bathroom. Last week I gave her a treatment to help calm her, she said. I'll alter her treatment to give her more energy in her hindquarters this week. I also noticed she's breathing funny, I said. In what way? From her abdomen, not her chest. Let me see this pretty girl, Carrie said and sat down on the oversized cushioned mat beside her. That's weird, Carrie said. Usually I can get her ribs to spring, but they won't move. She was pushing gently but firmly on her ribcage and quickly letting go. That breathing usually happens when they can't expand their rib cage. I've noticed she's having trouble breathing while she eats. Well, if her stomach is full and her heart is ballooned and her ribs aren't expanding, she began to probe Shelby's sides near her lowest ribs. It could be tumors. She said it like, pass the salt. I knew she was just talking aloud as she worked through the problem, but it was sobering. She quite suddenly stopped probing her ribs. I don't want to press any harder or probe more vigorously for fear if it is tumors, one may rupture. I would bet if we did any imaging, we'd find tumors, and that's why she's struggling more with breathing. There's no more room in her ribcage for her lungs to expand. Tumors would also explain how immobile her ribs are. If she's full of tumors, there's nowhere for them to move. At the end of the session, Addie, who had always had a special relationship with Shelby, did something she'd never done before. She came over to her got on her knees, petted her, kissed her on her forehead, and said, 
I love you, Shelbs. She gave her three long strokes from forehead to hips, then went back to what she'd been doing. We'd been coming to PT every Wednesday like clockwork, and Addie had just said goodbye to her. I knew in that moment Shelby was out of time and would not be coming back. Addie's tender goodbye was more upsetting to me than Carrie's talk about tumors. Carrie scooped Shelby up and walked us to my truck. She set her down on the small bit of grass between the parking lot and the highway. Her left hind leg immediately crumbled. She got it back under herself and tried to pee. I braced her leg with my hand to keep her from falling over. I was grateful Shelby allowed my touch and that it didn't interrupt her process. I believe Shelby knew it was happening and was grateful for my support. Let me know if that helps at all, Carrie said, and helped me put Shelby in the truck. The presence of tumors in Shelby's chest would explain everything. She developed a tightness in her torso that hadn't been there just a month earlier. She wasn't as limber. She was still eating, drinking, and seeking us out, but she wasn't walking around as much and had become less stable on smooth surfaces. She no longer made her trips around the kitchen island as Jim and I made lunch or I made dinner. She seemed not to have the energy, ability, or interest, and instead would lie down on the runner near her food and water bowls. And just like that, she broke through the gate at the bottom of the steps and made her way up to the office that afternoon, unwinded and unaffected. The next day, Thursday, she wanted to go upstairs. The gate was in her way, but instead of trying to break through, she lay down on the rug and stared at it, waiting for Jim or me to catch up with her unstated desire to be upstairs. Over the course of the day, I tried to make my peace with the inevitable. I would not let her die the way Willow Rose had, in crisis, as tumors ruptured inside her body. It was time. That evening, as Jim and I made cocktails, Shelby sought out a treatment on her therapy bed. He and I went out onto the patio. The smoke from the Canadian wildfires is really something, I said. Yeah, he said. It's time, I said. Carrie is sure she has tumors in her chest and explains why our carrying her is suddenly making it harder for her to breathe. I can't let her die like Willow. She's been through so much. We have to make sure her end comes with what dignity she has left. She's earned that much. Okay, he said, and also began to cry. The next morning, Friday, May 19th, after Jim had administered Shelby's eye drops, she was lying on the rug at my side as I had my coffee. I texted Carrie. We've decided it's time. I'm calling Laps of Love today, and we're looking to try and schedule for Tuesday. Oh no, what's going on? All the things. It's just time. She's growing more disinterested every day. Few, if any, tail wags. Isn't hanging around us as consistently. The usual things that seem to come at the end. Okay. Is there anything I can do? I think you've done above and beyond all the things you could possibly have done for her and for us. There was a pause. Then she texted, Do you want me to do it? Or would that be harder? How would we handle the details like cremation? And your schedule's a bit packed, isn't it? It's sweet of you to offer. I could do Wednesday after the PT clinic. I use paw prints forever. They're great and would meet me at the house. I was relieved Chubby would be taken care of by someone I knew truly loved her sweet soul, and I began to cry. Shelby, of course, pulled herself to her feet and rubbed her muzzle against my left leg. 
to comfort me. I gave her scritches behind her ears and under her chin and ran my fingers slowly from the tip of her nose to the top of her skull. She had always loved that. I told Jim what Carrie had offered, and he agreed. So yes, I texted. What time of day would that be, roughly? We'd all love it if it were you. Just let us know timing. Will you coordinate with Paul Prince? We're 15 minutes from the PT clinic. I texted our address. I could either do it early, like 9 a.m., over my lunch break, or around 5. If you reach out to them, they can walk you through the aftercare. I can get the drugs I'll need from Shannon so you don't have to pay for them. Or we can do everything through Paw Prince. It's a service they offer. Shannon was the vet who owned the practice where we took Shelby for PT. Carrie was a floater and rotated through a couple of vet offices providing PT services. Anytime Shannon saw us coming with Shelby, she'd say, It does my heart good to see Shelby's sweet face again each week. I know all is right in the world. I'd rather you pick the drugs because I trust you to choose the right things given your history with Shelby, I texted. The money isn't an issue. We can pay for them. Let's do after five. What time should I tell Paul Prince to be here? 5.30? Yes, that's perfect, she texted. They do a beautiful job. Just tell them you're a client of mine. They are very professional. The owner is a human funeral director. How could I pick an earlier time of day? I wanted every second I could have with Shelby for as long as I could have them. I waited a few minutes, processing what I was about to commit to. I'll make the call this morning. Thank you. A couple of hours later, as Shelby ate her breakfast, I made the call. Hello, my name is Carl Marking, and I'd like to... And I felt my sorrow swell up in my eyes and my throat twisted closed as I prepared myself to say aloud the words I did not want to speak. Take your time, the woman on the phone offered. I took a couple of deep, ragged breaths. Shelby had finished her breakfast and was laying down on all fours on the rug near her bowl. As soon as I got emotional, she stood up and slowly made her way across the kitchen floor, keeping to the new runners I'd put down the week before to give her the most traction I could. As I tried to get myself together for the woman on the phone, she arrived at my side and gently nudged my leg with her muzzle, offering me comfort even as I arranged to end her beautiful life. I reached down to cup Shelby's sweet face at my left hand. To have my dog euthanized at our home, I said, pulling myself together. Carrie, who I understand has worked with you before, is going to do the actual procedure. We know Carrie. We will coordinate everything. I ran through the details. Wednesday, May 24th at 5.30 and gave our address. She said how sorry she was that we had to make this final decision for Shelby and that she'd send me some information to review. She went over the costs and the process. Her name was Amanda, and she couldn't have been kinder or more professional. I couldn't get off the phone fast enough. I texted Carrie. We're all set for Wednesday at 5.30. I got down on the floor next to Shelby and gently petted her, which made her lie down on the floor. My gentle touch was too much additional weight for her legs to bear at this point. Even though I knew she couldn't hear me, I knew she could feel my love through my tender pets and scritches of all her favorite spots. As I told her how much I loved her and how sorry I was our time was coming to an end. I texted some of the key people in Shelby's life. Our friend Stacy, who felt her time with her senior dog was not far off. Our friend Patrick, who ran the shelter where I'd adopted Shelby. Our friends Angie and Brad, 
who were the only people we ever asked to take care of Shelby if we needed a rare evening out. My friend and ex-neighbor, Mary Ellen, who was not an animal lover, but who had been an active force of good throughout Shelby's life. Our friend Jackie, who used to bring her dog Gizzy over to play with Willow and Shelby. And our friends Greg and Chelsea, who used to dog sit for Willow and Shelby and had become like family to us over the years. Then I texted Nikki, who had consistently gone above and beyond to save Shelby's eye from having to be removed. I wanted to let you know we've decided it's time to euthanize Shelby, which we have scheduled here in our home this coming Wednesday. We wanted to say thank you so much for your competence, care, and the access you gave us to you personally during times of crisis and concern. You really helped her through one of the worst experiences of her lovely life, and we are forever grateful. You're a great doctor and a wonderful human being. Oh, my heart breaks for you guys, but she was incredibly lucky to have you, she texted. And us her, I replied. Weeks earlier, before we'd made this decision, Jim and I had been invited to the house of a friend of his for a dinner party with co-workers turned friends that he'd known for decades. I think you should go, I told him. I'd rather we go together, he said. I know. I'd rather we go together too, but we don't have anyone to take care of Shelby that night, and I don't want us to arrive only to have to turn around and leave. It took some convincing, but he decided to go. He needed a fun night out, and I knew this would do just the trick. Seven o'clock was the magic hour for pills and eye drops. Let me see those pretty eyes, I said to Shelby. As I waited the five minutes in between drops, I texted Nikki. Are there any drops we can stop with Shelby given her last day is Wednesday? We don't want her uncomfortable, but are there any we can stop? I think she will be okay without the drops, she texted. I don't expect to see any issues over a few days. I skipped the rest of Shelby's drops that night and ordered us a pizza. Pizza crust was Shelby's all-time favorite thing. When I ordered a pizza at my house, I'd hang up the phone and turn on the oven to keep it warm. Shelby quickly learned that the combination of phone call and oven meant pizza. Jim had a warming drawer at his house, and she learned that phone call plus warming drawer meant pizza. We had a warming drawer at our new home as well, but by now, she could no longer hear Somehow, she knew the difference in smell between the oven and the warming drawer, and she learned that the warming drawer meant pizza. Deaf or not, mostly blind or not, she never missed that trigger. She found me sitting at the kitchen table, and we waited together for the pizza to arrive. Then as we moved into the living room, she settled at my feet, on all four legs, as she could no longer sit for extended periods of time, and we shared a pizza together. Jim came home and said he'd had fun. He was lighter in spirit than he'd been in a very long time. I shared Nikki's thoughts about the eye drops with him. His mood instantly shifted. I don't know how I feel about that, he said. How do you mean? He paused as he worked through how he wanted to express his position. I don't want to change your routine. It's part of our daily ritual, and I wouldn't feel right not doing it. He got choked up, and tears welled in his eyes. I thought she may like having a break from them at this point, I said. I know, but I'd like to keep doing it. I understood. It had brought her comfort, had saved her eye, and it was a bond between them that he wasn't ready to release. Okay, I said. Shelby had two treatments on her therapy bed that day and was sound asleep across from us, breathing slowly and evenly, full of pizza crust, and chasing lazily after something in her dreams. I assumed a squirrel. 
Sunday mornings, Jim had a regular ritual of visiting his mother to help her set up her pills for the coming week, and he'd then take his father out to breakfast. I had been giving thought to Shelby's bucket list. Instead of physical things, I came up with a list of food items I knew she found particularly delicious. Bacon was one of her favorite things, so I made a package of bacon. As it cooked in the oven, she sat next to me on the floor, her nose going a mile a minute. I sat on the floor next to her and had my coffee as I petted her. When the bacon had cooled, I crumbled two pieces and put them with her morning kibble. I set the rest aside for treats over the coming days. For lunch, she had a bit of my hamburger. Early that evening, I texted Carrie. Is there anything we can do in Shelby's last days to make her more comfortable? Bump up her Rimadil? Her diuretic? I mean, it's only four days. What's she doing? Nothing. Just no tail wags. Only moves when she has to. Not hanging out with us much this afternoon. I'm just wondering if she's in pain or if it's her heart. Her respiration is fine. I think she's just finished. She's very zen suddenly, I said. I think she knows that we made the decision. She might, Carrie offered, and may be okay with it. I think she is. We've done right by her. There's no doubt. It's time to start pills and eye drops. More later. For dinner, we had pizza, and she again enjoyed some pizza crust. Monday during the day, Shelby was unusually active. She kept checking on Jim and me, then eventually settled on one of her three beds in the office and fell asleep. She was making a soft grunting sound and was again gently running in her dreams. Several of our friends stopped by throughout the day to say their farewells. Mary Ellen and her husband Bill, Greg and Chelsea, Angie and Brad, each had final words for her, shared a memory or two, and showered her with scritches. Late that afternoon, I was at my computer, about 20 feet away from Shelby, going through thousands of pictures I had of her to put something together for Wednesday. I was planning to post a statement and some pictures of her on social media. As I sifted through our life together, I began to silently cry. Somehow she sensed my distress, and there she was, under my desk, nudging my thigh with her muzzle and looking up at me. Deaf, mostly blind, and hardly able to walk. She had pulled herself up to come give me comfort. That's the kind of soul she was, always plugged into me always aware on some level what I was going through, and always doing her best to comfort me. You're right, Shelby, I said and turned off the monitor. Why look at pictures when I can look at you? I scooped her up, carried her to the front door, and we went out into the yard. She stood there sniffing. There was a breeze, and she leaned into it slightly, then decided to have a quick pee. I moved in quickly to brace her leg. Then she decided to lay down, closed her eyes against the sun, and just took in the smells of the yard and the woods surrounding our house. When she started panting from the heat, I carried her back inside and up to the cool, air-conditioned office. For dinner, she enjoyed a bit of fresh-baked salmon with her kibble. When we took her out to use the bathroom, she began to empty her bowels. Then she fell over and landed on what she had released. It was a first. She had always been able to maintain her leg in that posture but not tonight. I texted Carrie. I'm exploring options. Is there any way you could do tomorrow? She fell over mid-number two just now and couldn't complete the task. She's had an unusually active day, so I'm torn between her just being tired or that maybe she's not getting enough blood to her hind end and it's making her weak. Carrie replied, 
I'm in New Jersey late tomorrow. I can reach out to a friend who does house calls and see if she could be available if tomorrow is the day. I didn't like the thought of having a stranger end Shelby's life. No, we'll wait for you, I replied. I think we just let her overdo it today. Okay. I couldn't sleep and knew Carrie as a night owl. I texted her just after 11. We knew after she saw you last time. That was the first time she didn't feel better after seeing you. It's worse for the first hour or so after she wakes up. Then it gets better. Then she gets tired, and her left hind leg just folds. I'm sorry. She fought a great fight. I don't want her waiting if she's ready. She's ready, I texted. She still managed to break through the gate today, but then didn't have it in her to go up the steps. Are you okay-ish? She asked. Or at least at peace with the decision? At peace with the decision. It's time. I will miss her forever, but I'm clear in my heart it's the right decision and the right time. Tuesday morning, May 23rd, Jim was away taking one of his parents to a doctor's appointment. Shelby got some more bacon. Considering she had fallen over the night before, Shelby was having a pretty good morning so far and signaled she needed to pee. She was closest to the front porch door, which had just one step down to the porch and another into the yard. I opened the door and she headed toward it, which was her signal for, Back off, Dad, I've got this. But as she crossed the threshold, she stumbled onto the porch. I got her righted, and she insisted on taking herself into the yard and stumbled off the porch and into the grass. As she adopted the position to pee, her left leg folded under her, and she began to fall down as she peed. I've got you, sweet girl, I said. When she finished, I got her leg back under her, scooped her up, and she released what urine she wasn't able to eliminate in the grass onto my arm. I carried her gently back into the house and set her down on one of the beds in the back hall at the bottom of the steps. I got a towel and a few of her eye wipes and cleaned her up as best I could. I called Jim. It's time. She can't wait until tomorrow. Too much could change between now and then. And through more tears, I walked him through what had happened. I felt at this point things could too easily go from stable to crisis. Another day with her was not worth the risk of something catastrophic happening. Shelby would stay for as long as we asked her to, I said. She'd do it for us, but it's time we do this for her. Okay, I agree. Come home as soon as you can. We need you. I hung up and called Paul Prince forever to see if they had someone who could fill in for Carrie. Amanda, the woman I'd spoken to before, answered the phone and said she'd need to reach out to the doctors and see if anyone had availability. I texted Carrie. I don't think we have another day with Shelby after all. Suddenly she can barely walk and can't eliminate waste without falling over. I have a call in to pause to see if they can do the whole thing tonight. I hated holding this moment alone. Amanda called back and said one of the doctors would be willing to come out, but it would be late, no earlier than 9.45 that night. I called Jim, and we decided it was okay. I texted Carrie. They have a doctor who can come at 9.45 tonight. Okay, whatever she needs, Carrie responded. We went through all the routines we normally did to offer her what stability or comfort they provided her. We did our best not to be sad in front of her. She slept in the office with us all day. Tuesday afternoon, she got some of my roast beef from lunch. We brought her into the family room with us that evening, and she got socked feet rubs while listening to classic jazz. And that night, Jim gave her her last eye drops, telling her for the final time about her pretty eyes. She got her final bits of pizza crust, there had been a shift in her, 
a resignation of sorts. She was ready to go, and I think she was more okay with that than we were, which helped me know in my heart we had landed on just the right day. They're here, Jim said. The vet knocked on the door. We thanked him for coming out so late, gave him the list of Shelby's meds so he'd know if there were any potential drug interactions as he set about his work. We'd put a piddle pad between Shelby's red and black plaid blanket and the therapy bed earlier that day, and she was lying on it when he came in. We gently pulled it and her away from the wall so he had full access to her body. When we met Willow at the emergency clinic for the last time, she'd already been sedated. When he injected Shelby with a sedative, she tried to jump up and escape. She barely had the strength. I held her gently in place, and we got her resettled on the bed. The vet positioned her on her right side. So she can see you, he said. It's her left eye that sees, yes, we nodded. I think she's ready, he said, and tapped her gently just under her eye. Oh, he said in surprise when she blinked. I know the sedative is working when her blink reflex stops. He tested again, and again she blinked. He took out a battery-operated trimmer and shaved her hind leg where he would inject the final drug. He gently tapped under her eye, and again she blinked. Normally she'd be sedated by now. Just as I was about to question whether or not he needed to increase the dosage, she exhaled. There we go, he said, tapped her gently under her eye, and this time she didn't blink. Are you ready? he asked. No, of course not, I thought. We could only nod at this point. He pushed the plunger. She kept breathing. We stroked her beautiful coat and looked into her clear amber eye and told her that we loved her. And she kept breathing. Am I remembering correctly that she's had a long cardiac struggle? He asked. Yes. Sometimes dogs with long histories of heart and respiratory issues have a resistance to the drug. They're so used to fighting for every breath. We waited another minute or two. I'm going to give her another injection, he said. I want to be sure her circulation is still functioning well enough that it gets where it needs to go in time. This was my worst fear, that her death would somehow be mishandled. What he said made absolute sense to me. Part of me was screaming, hurry, just as my heart was screaming, don't go. He gave her the second injection. And she was gone. Her bladder released, and the pad absorbed it all. Unlike Willow, whose golden reddish coat became less luxurious, less soft, and utterly lifeless, Shelby's fur became plush and supple and more textured. Her entire body was warm and pliable in a way it hadn't been for a very long time. She'd been holding so much tension in her body for so long, I'd forgotten how limber she used to be when she was younger. I buried my nose into the underside of her still warm, soft neck and took a deep, final breath of her. I wanted to sear the scent of her musk into my memory. As always, she smelled slightly of fresh cracked black pepper. They gave us a few minutes in private. There were many tears and sweet girls and I love yous. And then we went on with the business at hand and they took her body away. They left around 10 p.m. I made a brief post to social media. Shelby now rests with the stars from which we all came.
no longer in our home, forever in our hearts. It's done, I texted Carrie. He had to give her two doses. She kept fighting until the end. She replied, It has been an honor and a privilege to be part of Shelby's amazing adventure. Thank you for making her last time on Earth better, I sent. She replied, She made my life better. She brought me you. Jim and I stayed up until after midnight. We wanted to savor every single moment of Shelby's last day in our lives. The following weeks were full of surprises. When I came downstairs the next morning, I poured a cup of coffee and walked to the kitchen table. Above my normal seat is a picture of Harriet I hung after her funeral. Most of the memories I have of Shelby in our first home are interwoven with my memories of Harriet. It was like losing her all over again. I called the vet clinic to let them know Shelby was gone. Brenda was out of town. Jim reminded me how we had to feed Shelby out of our hands when she wore her cone after her eye surgery and again after her ablation, both her soft and her wet food. We'd cup our hands and she'd eat gently from them. Food, pills, treats. She was always so tender when taking anything from us. We got sympathy cards from close friends and her care team. Our friends Kathy and Doug named a star after her before I'd even written my post about her being back with the stars. I love when intentions align in that way. It's almost divine. Another friend of ours, Bonnie, had black ceramic tile paw prints made for us. She'd recently lost her own older dog, Tink. We mailed a card to Brenda, who became an unintentional key character in this story. But Brenda was at every turn throughout Shelby's life with me. How could she not be included? In the card, we thanked her for all the care and support she'd given Shelby over the 13 years she'd been in our lives. Thanked her for putting up with such a large care team and keeping all the threads together to be sure she was up to speed on the latest meds and conditions. I recognized her for all the time she'd made an extra effort for Shelby, personal calls and fitting us in for emergencies. Brenda had provided care to so many of my animals over the years. There have been about a dozen cats and dogs in the 26 years I've known her. She also sent us a card that crossed in the mail. I just got back from being away and was given the sad news, she wrote. She certainly fought with everything she had, and you two were so good to her. I will remember her forever. When she received our card, she called. I wanted to say I have received many such cards over my career, but yours had such heart to it. I had to call. We've been through a lot together over the years, you and I, I said. You did all you could for Shelby, more than most would have. She truly was a special dog, and I really will remember her forever. Most surprisingly of all, Shannon, the woman who owns the clinic where we met Carrie for PT, painted a watercolor of Shelby from one of her final pics which Carrie had sent to her. She was in a sitting position, her button ears properly folded, just a hint of the amber in her eyes, and centered behind Shelby was a heart Shannon didn't even know her middle name was Love. Epilogue Shelby came into my life quite by accident. I've known Patrick, the man who ran the shelter where I found Shelby, for over a decade now. It wasn't until I wrote Shelby's story that I realized they most likely were expecting Shelby to die, given the death and autopsy of the dog that had come in with her. Brenda had said it years ago, but I couldn't wrap my head around it at that time. 
It would explain the lack of urgency around her care and why they withheld expensive x-rays. Shelters aren't resorts or hospitals. Their mission is to save the dogs they can save and place as many as possible in safe, loving homes. They face brutal decisions every day while watching every penny. How could they justify investing resources in an animal they may have believed wouldn't thrive? Save the ones you think you can save. It's their brutal reality. I'd never looked at Shelby's story through that lens until now. At the time, I was indignant about her lack of care, but they did what they could, and fate did the rest. I am grateful I went into a section I wasn't supposed to that day. I am grateful I walked up to her cage and stood in front of that small, wounded, hot mess of a dog. I am grateful I paid attention as she gently raised one paw and pressed it tenderly on the cage door. That one action of mine led to Shelby enjoying a long, healthy life. Thirteen years we were together, and she lived seven months beyond her expected expiration date. Life had taught me to be independent and self-sufficient. I imagine I showed Shelby a different possibility for her life, just as my friends and neighbors showed me people can do surprisingly wonderful things, if you let them in. Things can be better. There are caring people in the world. We are all lovable. What I wouldn't give to hear the shake of her head again, or the sound of her jet black toenails walking across the floor to come and give me a kiss and see if I had something tasty I may be willing to share. Just a nibble. Shelby was the epitome of the bumper sticker I've seen over the years reading, Who Saved Who? It's clear to me, we saved each other. I believe I got the better end of that deal 